Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. Today, I'm so excited to have on Dr. Kathleen Smith, who's a licensed therapist and the author of the book, Everything Isn't Terrible, Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. She is a graduate of George Washington University and Harvard University. She's written for many popular websites. Kathleen runs her own private practice in Washington, D.C., and is the host of the TV show Family Matters. Hello, Dr. Smith. Thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you about anxiety. (laughs) Yes, anxiety. It's what I do most in my practice. It's probably what you treat most in your practice as well. And I, I have to say, I really loved this book, really loved it. I think it's the most approachable book on anxiety that I've probably ever read. It's written with humor and lightness, a great structure, a flow that is very approachable. It's not intimidating at all. And so I can't imagine a better time um, really to be talking about this. And so we have to acknowledge that today is March 25th, which means that we are pretty much on a national lockdown. Most of us are quarantined to our homes. We're fighting uh, a global pandemic. So you wrote about, like you say, the first line in your book is about living in an anxious world. And so I noticed that you have written a piece about asking questions during this time. So before we jump into your book, I feel like I have to ask, what are your thoughts around how this coronavirus is affecting people? You know, I think what I've observed, at least the clients that I have met with in the last two weeks, is that they're thinking about the same things. Their problems are just magnified (laughs) and the anxiety has been dialed up. You know, people who are dealing with relationship conflict or financial anxiety, right, or work stress, all of that has just been magnified tenfold, you know, and it's that much harder to do your best thinking and to sort of, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, to interrupt what it is that you normally do to calm things down. And so I think that, you know, I feel very privileged that, you know, because of technology, I I can still meet with people and think with people, but it is that much harder. And people aren't necessarily wanting to focus just on, you know, the pandemic, right? They're thinking about the relationships and the things they always want to work on, but it's just that much harder. How do your tips, do you feel like in your book, best apply to the rising rates of anxiety? I mean, I would love to know what you think about the rising rates of anxiety, where that's coming from, and how your book kind of weaves in with the trend that we're seeing. I don't know the exact reasons why we're all more anxious, uh, you know, than maybe we have been in the past. Who knows? I'm not a historian. So maybe there was another period of time where people were more anxious, you know, but this idea that societal anxiety is very contagious, right? And that what we see, you know, on TV, online, from our friends and neighbors and family that we should be worried about, it is very contagious. And it's very easy to lose your own thinking when everyone else is telling you what to think and how to react. And I think, you know, it's partially because there's so much information out there and there's so many people telling you what to think and how to deal with these big problems, right? It's very easy to kind of 
become less capable yourself, right? And to not rely on your own ability to kind of see your way through things. And so <laughs> I think that's what, you know, especially in the situation we find ourselves now, it's very easy to just ask someone else, what do I do? Calm me down. Tell me what's the right way, right? We forget that we actually can do some of that problem solving ourselves. And I think the more people kind of lose that capacity, the more susceptible they are to feeling very, very anxious when problems arise. When you talk about anxiety, do you feel like you're coming at this from a really a clinical perspective and definition? Or, you know, are you talking about it in the way that everybody talks about it? The word anxiety and even depression are used very casually. In what context are you referring this to this? Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction because the in the theory I was trained in, it's not so much the diagnostic term. It's the simplest definition I know is it's your response to a real or imaginary threat. So it's not just how you feel when you're distressed. It's also what you do and what uh, groups of people do. Right. And so it's not necessarily when I talk about anxiety, it's not the diagnostic term of an anxiety disorder or something that people have or don't have. It's a force in all of our lives and it's our response to stressful things. And the idea is that sometimes our response to a stressor makes things worse than the actual problem, <laughs> you know, and that's that sort of chronic anxiety that can be present in ourselves, in our workplace, in our families. And so it's a little bit different than how somebody might talk about it in a, in a diagnostic sense, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I can feel that. I feel like the tone of the book is just about, you know, even in your subtitle, you talk about insecurities uh, interrupting anxiety and just calming down. So it is anywhere on that spectrum of worry um, or how you respond to stress. What do you find, it says in your subtitle, Conquer Your Insecurities, what do you find that people today are insecure about? Well, I think people's insecurity, and I talk about this some in the book, you know, comes from this, what I call pseudo self that we all kind of build up to appear calmer, more mature, more capable than we actually are. So it's very easy to borrow confidence and calmness from your accomplishments, your job title, um, your position in life, how other people treat you, uh, which it's very human. We all do that. But that leaves you in a very insecure place because your mood and your functioning will go up and down very drastically depending on how people are treating you that day or how people are relating to you, right? And that can leave you very dependent on people's praise, people's approval, making sure your family agrees with you about everything. And if you don't get those things, you know, you feel very insecure. And so it's that what I call the the borrowing of self from other people can leave you feeling very insecure. So how do you help people through that? I think a lot of people can identify with that or they, you know, even the, the term that is a psychological term, but highly used is imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. How do you help people through those situations where they're, they have a pseudo self or they're borrowing their self-esteem from one aspect of their life, but they really don't feel great about other aspects of their life? Yeah. I mean, it's not a, sh a short-term process. It's a lifelong task. But, you know, in the short term, it can look like really sitting down and thinking about 
what it would look like to build up your own sense of self. You know, what are the things that are really important to you? What beliefs or principles do you have that you want to guide you through really difficult times or really challenging relationships? And it's not that you never borrow thinking or ideas from other people, but it's that you don't automatically borrow them, right? That you use your own reasoning and your own thinking to decide who it is you're trying to be in your day-to-day life. And, you know, that takes time and that takes effort. But I think when people begin to see themselves act out of that self, they are able to be a lot calmer and a lot more mature in really tricky situations. And so I think, you know, if people start to do a little little bit of that building up of self, they do notice a, a pretty big difference in their anxiety level. Those are some really good tips. If you look could see right now, the your book in my hands, I have a lot of little notes and little comments that really struck me. One of them is right under like, what is anxiety? You have basically the fight, flight, or freeze that is very common, but you add in another F. So I will say, I think still some people think it's fight or flight, but now we think freeze. Um, We have added freeze. It's been there for a while, but then you added fret, fret to others about scary thing. So how did you come about that? And is that your original thought? Did you get that from somewhere? Because I hadn't, I haven't seen that before. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that goes back to Bowen theory, the theory I was trained in, the idea that we automatically borrow calmness or agreement from other people as a way of calming down as quickly as possible. So complaining to people, asking for their reassurance, asking them to be your ally or to side with you. That is a very automatic thing that we all do. Sometimes that can be called triangling. So we pull in other people when we, a third person, when we have a conflict with somebody. Uh, But it can also look, you know, like just, you know, coming home at the end of a stressful day and just complaining to your spouse about it. And they say, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. You're going to figure this out. It's a very human, a very natural, automatic thing we do. But sometimes that gets in the way of building up that ability to calm yourself down if you're relying on other people to do it. And I was just lucky that it, I could think of a word that started with F. So, yeah, it was <laughs> so I added it in. <laughs> I really like that. There were a lot of parts of this that I like. I like what, that you have in the book, like a let's practice section. And I really like that, you know, when you have, you have people go through an exercise that's other focused, self-focused, other focused, self-focused. So you, so you can kind of come up with a statement and do that. Can you walk the listener through what that looks like when they're struggling with something? Yeah. So when we feel anxious, when we feel threatened, we tend to look to others and because if they're the threat, right, we want to make sure they're not going to hurt us or jeopardize us, our situation or threaten us in any way. Right. And so that leads to more anxiety a lot of the time, because if you're focused on another person, you try and control them, you try and avoid them. You know, we do all these things, but ultimately we can't control other people. And I think a good example right now, if you think about this pandemic, right, it's so easy to focus on how everyone else is doing the wrong thing (laughs) or how other people are not being responsible that you could really get yourself very worked up, right, and very anxious about that. And I think the remedy is to turn the focus back on yourself and say, well, what is my responsibility? What am I trying to do here? How do I want to communicate to people about this? And let me just stay focused on that because that is the one thing that I can control. 
But it's very easy when we're we're stressed out to just look to everyone else and criticize them or, you know, study them very carefully or become obsessed with other people, right? And so just, you know, flipping it back on yourself and what you feel like is your job in a challenging situation is is one way of calming yourself down a little bit. So you've been sort of teeing this up. In the book you talk about, again, this psychological term differentiation, and you have this one sentence that I really like. You said, Dr. Bowen proposed the idea that people will vary in the amount of emotional separation they have from their families. He had a word for this, differentiation. So I feel like that's a theme of what you're talking about a lot today is different forms of differentiation. And it does apply very much to what's happening, you know, like toilet paper, right? That That's a form to me of you're worrying about what other people are doing. So even though it's an irrational thing to go out and buy 50 rolls of toilet paper is what Americans have done. So can you talk about... Um, <laughs> differentiation as the goal. That's one of the things you write about and what that actually looks like. Right. So there are kind of two components to the idea of differentiation. The first is when you are overwhelmed with anxiety, when you feel threatened, can you tease out your thinking about the best way through it, the best way forward outside of just the reacting piece, right? The panic. Those are those F's that we talked about, the, you know, the fight, flight, freeze, fret. And so that's the ability to pull out your best thinking when you are distressed. But there's, it's also the ability to do it around other people. There's a relationship component <laughs> because you also have to separate your thinking from everyone else's thinking, right? And, you know, we talked about this a few minutes ago and not just borrow everyone else's thinking and how they're dealing with the situation. I think the toilet paper was a great example, right? <laughs> you say, oh, everyone else is doing this, so this must be the right thing to do or this must be... Uh, this must be where my attention should lie, right? Without taking the time to think, okay, what do I need here? What are my needs? What are my challenges? What problems do I need to solve this week? You know, maybe buying 100 rolls of toilet paper is not a problem I need to solve. <laughs> you know, so I think pe people often forget that there's a relationship piece to it as well. It's not just about knowing your own mind. It's knowing your own mind when everyone else around you is telling you what to think. That's the hard part. Um, especially with people close to you, especially with your family, you know, with, with your spouse, people uh, with whom you sort of have the least amount of emotional separation because those relationships are so important to you. I'm really struck by this idea of being emotionally separated from your family because I generally find and believe, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, that it does seem that anxiety is either genetic hereditary, a learned behavior. I'm not really sure, but it definitely seems to run in families. What is your thought around that? Yeah. I mean, definitely there is a level of chronic anxiety in everyone's family and some of us get more of it and some of us are lucky and don't get as much. Right. And that's what's interesting. Is if you look at a family is you start to notice that some people can kind of operate a little bit outside of it better than others. And there are differences within the family. There are differences within siblings. Some siblings, you know, some siblings, you know, they get more of the focus. They get more of their parents' anxiety, right? And others kind of escape it a little bit. And they usually have a little bit of an easier time. So there can be differences within the family. But definitely some families have more anxiety than others. Uh, but that doesn't mean that people can't work on how differentiated 
they are, you know. Emotional separation can be a tricky term because it doesn't mean you're separated from your family. You still have emotional contact with them. You're just able to think and act for yourself in the middle of that. But when you have a really, really anxious family, that's that's even more that difficult to do. Do you think that anxiety literally has a genetic component? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think you there are all these interesting studies and I'm definitely not an expert on this, but, you know, of people who are, you know, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors or some of these, um, you know, epigenetic changes and responses to stress that you see certain things get activated and not get activated. It's it's really interesting to see. So I think it's definitely genetic, but also it's how people are operating in the moment as well. It, it can be affected by world events, by big events that occur, you know, like deaths and other things. But yeah, there's definitely a, a nature piece for sure. I feel like one of the things I'd want to share with people listening is that, because I, I mainly treat anxiety as well, is that what I find, and in my personal life too, that depending on who I'm talking to, I may talk about something a little differently or get wrapped up in the angst of the situation a little differently, depending on my interaction or my relationship with that person. So if I were talking to a family or or friend who was really anxious and worried about what was going on, I would probably have a propensity to be a little bit more like joining in Mm -hmm. and then vice versa. If someone's calmer, then all of a sudden I'm talking about the things that are making me feel calm. I'd be curious uh, what your thoughts are. I feel like when treating somebody around this, it really is like one of those signs or one of those warnings we need to give them. Like you're going to be constantly challenged, especially when you're older. I think when you're younger, uh, you're still forming and developing. But when you're older and you've got these patterns, it's like, yep. And when you sit down at that Thanksgiving day table, you know, these things are going to come up. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you also see a strong pattern in that way? My job is to help people be really curious about what those patterns are (laughs) and to be really interested in them because I think that's the path towards doing something different is to not beat yourself up so much about how you've been programmed. (laughs) And because we wouldn't do what we do if it didn't work really well a lot of the time, you know, (laughs) you know, and that's a, that's an evolutionary thing. You know, we've developed these different strategies for dealing with anxiety because they have worked. But the problem is sometimes they get in the way of who we're trying to be. And sometimes when the anxiety is really high, they just don't work anymore. And so, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who is on their way to Thanksgiving, you know, my thoughts to them are, well, you're probably going to do what you always do. It might take 100 tries before you do anything different. (laughs) You know, you might snap at somebody you've always snapped at or you might avoid somebody you've always avoided. Right. But if you can start to observe what you do and what everyone else does and how those things are related, that might give you like a heartbeat's worth of time to think about and maybe activate doing something differently. But if people are going into it, you know, ashamed or embarrassed or frustrated with themselves, it's really hard to do anything different. But if they can kind of laugh at a little bit and be curious about it, I think that's kind of the first step towards maybe being a little bit more mature, especially around their family. I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> yeah, no, that I like how you're using the words um, curious and that's all really, I think, important. I've been 
using that's been my word of the year probably so far is just be curious and demand curiosity around things. But you talked about family. So listening their family, their maybe their immediate family, their family of origin, they can be relating to some of this anxiety talk. And you have this one chapter, chapter seven, that's on dating. And I do work with people who have uh, been, who are divorced and are now dating again. And so many of the things that you wrote in here, I see in my own clients. So I'm curious if you can talk about the patterns that you're seeing in dating and some really practical tips or, you know, techniques that you share with people to try to help them through that process. Yeah. I think with dating, especially it goes back to that conversation we had about other focus versus self-focus, because when you meet someone you really like, all your principles kind of fly out the window. <laughs> your focus becomes, how do I get this person to like me? How do I get this person to respond to me or text me back or not dump me, right? And it's not on, okay, who do I want to be as I date? <laughs> and what's important to me? How do I communicate that? Uh, how do I pursue difficult conversations when they're necessary? how do I be respectful of people if I don't want to go out with them again? You know, and I think when people are able to sit down and think about, okay, if I'm dating as anxiously as I possibly could be, what would I be doing? They're usually pretty good at guessing what those things would be because they've done them before, <laughs> you know, and then I ask them, if you're dating as maturely as possible, what does that look like? And can that be a template for you as you move forward because it's really hard to do that thinking once you meet someone you really like. Uh, it's, I think that's why it's so important, if, especially if people are single or not dating. That's a really great time to do that thinking uh, because it's that much harder once you're in a relationship. So, you know, I think people, they see that it makes a difference when they're able to write down some of those ideas and kind of hold on to them um, and can say, okay, my responsibility is not to get someone to like me. My responsibility is to be this version of myself uh, or try my very best to be that version. And then people can respond to that however they want. Maybe they'll like me, maybe they won't. But at least I know that I'm kind of being true to those ideas. Um, that doesn't mean that people don't get really, really anxious when <laughs> things are uncertain or when they're heartbroken, right? Those are very normal responses. But I think it, it does help them a little bit to kind of get through it and stay focused on um, the person they want to be. Those are some good, good things to think about. And talk about security. I think it takes a pretty secure person in a dating situation to think, I'm going to show up as the best version of me. And you may like it and you may not. And that's okay. That's where we're striving to get, but it's so much more complicated for most people than that. So I like how you break that down. You have lots of great ideas and great stories in here. If you had to leave people with the major points that you want them to have, you know, some takeaways from everything is ter everything isn't terrible, um, what would they be? Well, I mean, the first one is anxiety is something we're all up against, right? And <laughs> we do what we do, like I said, for a reason. And the more curious you can be about your anxious functioning and the work that you can do to sit down and, and think, you know, is there an alternative way of living? Is, are there things I want to be or you know, behaviors I want to model in my relationships that I can hold on to when I feel anxious. And I think acknowledging that it is a lifelong task is important. I know that doesn't sell in these days in the therapy world. People want five easy steps to your best self, right? Things like that. 
Uh, you know, but just this idea that the more curious you can be about your anxiety and your functioning, the sort of the better you set yourself up to do really good thinking and to build stronger relationships and and to just have a better life. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of your wisdom and for writing Everything Isn't Terrible, Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure that other people will as well. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.